Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. A very distinguished author joins us now, has written all sorts of best-selling music books and all sorts of other, other kinds of books, but I'm particularly interested in the fact that he, he's, he's well qualified for this particular job by having written about Van Morrison and Morrissey. <laughs> and so there's only one other way you can complete the set, yes, of that particular trio... And that's by writing a book about Ray Davis. And, uh, and very good it is, too. It's called A Complicated Life. Would you please welcome Johnny Rogan. So, Johnny, the, as I say, a bit of a magic lantern show we've got here, just in order to kind of move the conversation along. And uh, I, I managed it because this story starts in Muswell Hill. There's Muswell Hill in the 1950s, I think. That's, uh, that's probably the, the vintage of that, of, that, uh, of that particular picture. Every, anybody recognise that? There must be people here who live in Muswell Hill. The rich people who live in Muswell Hill. No, <laughs> no it wasn't the same in Ray Davis's day, was it? You know, in those days it was the place where your auntie lived. You know, nowadays it's media millionaires. So tell us about the Muswell Hill that, that Ray Davis grew up in, Johnny. Well, his family moved there um, from the King's Cross area. Um, His father, Fred, uh, worked as a slaughterman. Uh, Ironically, uh, as I point out in the book, both Ray and Dave are vegetarians. But uh, (laughs) the father used to come home laden with cuts of meat, which he would hide down his trousers and all over him. Because back then there was rationing. Uh, And this is, you know, particularly during the war years. And he was a reserved occupation, so um, not only did he not fight, he actually, uh, you know, he he had a plentiful supply of meat. Uh, And that was one of the things that that stuck with me. But the, it was it was strange because they they moved out of out of central London, hoping to get away from the bombs and all the rest of it. I think the 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 morning that Ray was born, uh, (laughs) 
Muzzle Hill was bombed, yes. unfortunately. But uh, it wasn't that affluent an area, actually. No, no. But if you go there now, it's still very leafy and all the rest of it. And um, it's interesting to, you know, to see school and, and, and the environment. And it, 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 it's quite a delicate in a way. Um, and even then, I, I would imagine. Well, the story, that, I think the story goes that, that his mother just got on the tube and went yeah. north until she found trees, pretty much, didn't she? Yeah, that would be it. And that's um, where we're going to move to. Yeah. You know, and, and King's Cross was didn't not, last very long. Was probably. not pleasant, you know. Yeah. So, okay, so that that's Muswell Hill, which figures in this story. Um, there's the, um, yes, the rather blurred way. picture of of, uh, of the hero of this particular story. I don't know how old is there about eleven or twelve or something like that. Well, yeah, around about there, maybe a bit younger. And the story had what? It was six elder sisters. And yes. obviously a younger brother. That's a bit, a bit unusual. Six elder sisters, astonishing. Well, he did have six elder sisters, and I think his mother was about forty-one when he was born, and forty-four, if if yeah. that, when when Dave was born, more or less. And um, yeah, uh, that, that was the most, still is the most profound influence on his life. I think was his sisters. Um, and we'll probably get to the death of his sister later, but the, the very fact that he had six sisters. And Dave says this too, you know, you speak to Dave and say, Dave, you know, you're really into women, you know, where's this come from? And this whole sexuality thing, he says, well, I was surrounded by my sisters getting dressed up every night. And I mean, he talks about it in a very sort of sexy <laughs> way. And if, God, even then, Dave, you were, you were wandering around looking yeah. at your sisters. But um, it's an extraordinary thing because... It, it, that's where he got his musical education um, from his not just from his father and, and, and his mother but from the, from the sisters um, he was sent over rock and roll records he claims um, which I thought about subsequently and they were 78s, they must have had some breakages but some of them yeah. got through uh, he got the early Elvis Presley records and stuff like that and he famously said to his sister he wrote to her and said we've got our own Elvis Presley here, he's called Lonnie Donegan um, but back then, because of his father, he knew all the pub songs, um, you know, Roll Out the Barrel and just a, an array of, of jazz, blues and musical uh, fodder that, that was there at the time. And he didn't actually see the musical, he says, but he saw some variety. Um, I think he turned down an opportunity to, to go to the Hippodrome or something. Yeah. He was so shy. Well, we've got, we're going to have a few pictures of those in a moment, but I'm just going to ask one thing. Because sure. There are so many... I've just written down some of the adjectives that you use in your terrific... Johnny's book is absolutely fantastic, by the way. It really is. I, I know a lot about Ray Davis, and I, I thought I did, and I've learned a huge amount more. But here's some of the adjectives you use to describe Ray Davis. Um, phenomenally ta- talented. Uh, restless, fearful, creepy, neurotic, narcissistic, silent, vampiric... Now, I mean, here he is at the age, what are we saying, he's about 11 or something. How, what kind of a boy was he? I mean, the, the book's called A Complicated Life. I and mean, was he already uh, eccentric, hard to get to know, hard to read? I, I don't know. By that stage, ooh. No, I'd say he was... Yes, I suppose is the, is the quick answer. He was very different from Dave from, from, from early on. Um, I often found it puzzling as to where this the, the, pro, the problematic aspect of, of Ray's life came from, because he was surrounded by this this loving family and six sisters, as you rightly said. But it was a chaotic household because of that. And don't forget, they were married and um, husbands were moving in, and there were more children. Then and it was. Con- and it's a small house, isn't it? And it was a very small house, and they were all living on one on top of the other. And there was this constant moving in and out of the house and. Um, from the newlyweds as it were Uh, 
So it was pretty peripatetic in that sense. And also, I think, Ray, you know, it's, it's a, it sounds a strange paradox, but the more people that are surround you, sometimes you go inward. And, and that was what Ray did. I think he became a very inward-looking child. Um, he, he certainly had problems growing up. And but he was obviously really devoted. There's a bit amazing bit where you say that yeah. one of his sisters leaves to go to Australia. I think she emigrates, and he described that as being. And one of them dies actually, doesn't she? Well, while quite, dancing. Yeah. In fact, we've got a picture of one of the ballrooms. He became obsessed with this idea of his sisters going out to the Palais de Danse. They went to the Lyceum Ballroom, didn't they? The Locarno, yeah. and uh, you know. And and he said that the effect of for her emigrating the other time was. He said we described it very melodramatically as being the beginning and the end of everything. Of everything. And what yeah. What did he mean by that? It's amazing. Well, he just said that to me, and he, he said, yeah, that was the beginning and the end of everything. Now, that's much later. What is most extraordinary about that? That's, that's 1964 he's saying that. Um, you know, he is 20, he's just coming up to his 20th birthday. Um, so it's hardly the end of everything. If your sister moves to Australia, I, I would have thought, <laughs> you know, my sister moved out to Ireland when I was... 15, but, but you got it to the beginning and the end of everything. You <laughs> <laughs> moved on. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, well, maybe he just is very theatrical. I mean, I don't know. No, I don't think it's theatrical. There's, the, the, he, you know, he, he wrings emotion out of everything. Yeah. And he has a very profound and deep sensibility about things that affect him very strongly. And uh, obviously, the, his, his, his sister, Renee, who um, had emigrated to Canada and was the one that was sending Send records, records and letters, and she came back, had a troubled marriage. And a, and a child, and she came back and decided to stay here. But she had a hereditary heart condition from when she was very young, and actually died on the dance floor. Oh, that's tragic. Uh, uh, yes, it is. In, in, and come uh, dancing, in fact, presumably has echoes of that which he wrote later on. It does. Yeah. But the strangest thing, of course, it, it was on the eve of Ray's birthday, thirteenth uh, yeah. birthday, that she died. And um, you know, the last thing he saw was going out to the dance, and she never came back. Oh, ended awful. up in Charing Cross Hospital, and and. Um, had a heart attack and, and that was it. Yeah. But uh, it and he was just re-establishing a, a strong relationship with her. Another thing about Ray he was an insomniac. Even then, he couldn't sleep. The girls used to stay up playing him, playing records to him at night to try and soothe him and make him sleep. He was he was troubled, and he did. I, I spoke to him something. I mentioned something to him, and he said, "Yes, it was it was about this." Self-harm, that was another aspect of, of, of his early life, is that he kind of plays it down a bit, but it did seem very odd to me. He was saying that when he used to play football and he got a bruise on, on, his, on his leg or his thigh, and he kept hitting it with a hammer to make the bruise presumably even more colourful. But this was uh, you know, very disturbing for his parents. That is unorthodox behavior. Yeah, and that's why he went to see a child therapist, so you, yeah. you, you have, which is very unusual then back in the 50s, I would Absolutely. have said. I would have said. Yeah. But he also said to me, I, I once took this carbolic thing in the bathroom, and it's a typical Ray Way. Yeah, he said, you know, it was worse than Epsom salts. Not a good idea. Yeah. And... Um, uh, mind you, I had told him that I once drank some ink, so um, perhaps we were just <laughs> empathising. Becoming competitive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, this, was, this was the, the, the we touched on this a bit. Yeah, you know, the, 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 these were the kind of influences you know from his from his parents, Bing Crosby, Murray Lloyd. His Cam dad Calloway. used to sing Minnie the Moocher by yeah. Cab Calloway in the middle there, didn't he? Yeah, Crosby on the right. That was his dad's star turn, which he'd end up collapsing on the floor with bottles of brown ale surrounding the place. They used to have, of course, the Davises were famous for their parties. 
um, up, in, up in the house. They invited everybody. And it was a big family. I mean, they didn't need to invite anybody. But uh, it was, uh, you know, they go around the pub and come back with, with crates of ale. Um, much to the chagrin, no doubt, of their near neighbours who would be banging on the door. Um, or, or the walls, rather. And um, these parties were famous. Again, th- that, this is a magical thing for Ray and Dave to... to you know, there's a piano in the, in, in the front room. They all did their star turns, and Ray did his turn. He did Temptation. It's a Perry Como. Everybody's done that. And, and, and that's, you know, and he got up and did that. So there's confidence there. Very much the same world that McCartney grew up in, actually. Yes, actually. It's always yeah. someone banging the piano, a lot of j- dark yeah. bottles jumping up and down. Auntie Gin and... Yeah. <laughs> et so, so that's the stuff that he kind of inherited. But this is the stuff that he was, he was into, first of all. Is that, is that right? Well, that changed his life in a way. I think he, he, he didn't see Bill, Big Bill Brunsey. He, he saw, um, I, I think it was Granada TV production. Uh, they did, from a, from a French club, they actually showed him. And he'd never seen anything as raw as this. And, uh, and his father liked it, which was perhaps important to him. His father said, he's a real man. That's a real voice. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. not like these namby-pamby Tommy Steele oh, singers that, <laughs> Pat Boone's yeah. that were around. He thought this is the real deal. And, um, but it's funny, when you see those pictures, you see Cab Calloway and you see Bing Crosby, Mary yeah. Lloyd, uh, Brunsey and Buddy Holly. If you join up the dots, you can sort of understand where the kinks are coming from if you stir a bit of music all into it. Well, those, this, those kind of coordinates those are, are the, Yeah, th- those, those are the two trajectories. You've got, on the one hand, his interest in the blues... And Elvis Presley and R and, and R and B and pop music coming through then, so he's very modern in that sense. But on the other hand, he's a throwback because he 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 won't reject the music of his sisters. He you know it's like punk rock you were speaking about earlier. You know he's still sticking with Led Zeppelin even when the Sex Pistols are there. And um, although it's disguised in the early Kinks, you can see it gradually emerging. Um, they, you know they start off as an R and B group and then suddenly raise doing other things, but by the 70s, he's becoming close to that musical tradition that he grew up with. Yeah. And he's actually on stage dressed like Max Miller. I know. Um, so, there you go. As we were saying earlier, if somebody writes a song with a chorus that goes, uh, oh, yes, he is, you expect people to go, oh, no, he isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is the, oh, this is the John Barry... Seven. Well, there's a really interesting bit in the book about the, about the evolution of the name Kinks. Because you forget what, what, what Kinks or Kinkiness kind of meant in 1965. It's fascinating. So explain a bit about that. I mean, it's quite, quite, it's quite uh, shocking in a way. Well, it was. Um, I mean, the origin of how they became the kinks is such a well-trodden tale, and it's been told so many different ways. With, and, 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 you know, I, I mean, I could... I should give us your version. I should give a, a reel, reel them all off. Well, that's something that I thought was important, was that there actually was a single called Kinky. And, of course, this was 1963. The uh, Profumo affair was in full flight. Christine Keeler was in the newspapers. And you had the famous Lord Denning um, report. The, uh, we're going to sort out what, what's going on, really going on with these high court judges and these sex parties that are going on. And, and he produced the, the Denning report. And, um, and it was pretty uh, lascivious stuff, to say the least. And the word kinky was in the air as well. We had programs like That, that Was The Week That Was. Um, Private Eye um, had, had got You've Never Had It So Good, yeah. which they... Yes. You, you'd never had it so often. <laughs> so <to say>. and, <laughs> and Kinky was there, and of course you had the Avengers. Um, Kinky, Kinky Boots, Boots was Kinky the same yeah, yeah, for yeah. Honor Blackman and, and, and Steve. And, 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 Where is that? Yeah. yeah, and that was round about February. That was about a month after they they'd used it. Um, and I found also um, the very week that they decided to call themselves the Kings. 
naturally one's going through all the papers at the time. I, f- I found this um, cartoon in, I think it was the, either the Evening Standard or the Daily Mail, and it's, 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 it's a teenager saying, what does she want for Christmas? And she says, all I want for Christmas is a beetle, you know, a million pounds for Barnardos and some kinky booze or something. And I thought, well, there it is again. And, yeah. um, and the word um, is there. And if you ask them all, they've all got different versions of it. The manager, Robert Wace, thought, he said, it was a society who swelled them, a friend of mine, or Ozzy Armidas or something that came up with the name. And Larry Page says, no, no, it was me who came up with the name. I said it. And... Um, and Ray goes with Larry sometimes, and then Dave goes with somebody else, and sometimes there's another story of them being in a pub or somebody... And Ray tells the story differently when he's on stage. He says it's... Um, somebody said, you should be called a kinks with a, with a look like that because they've already had their hair long, etc., etc. So, I mean, you add them all together. They're probably all true in one sense because... Well, the they did. Is, I mean, the you think they really looked yeah. amazing, actually. Well, a bit slightly later on, Dave Davis, second from the left there, obviously, he's him from the right, rather, is, you know, the longest male hair in Britain, really. Was it? I mean, he's a real fop. It was. I remember in the, the summer of 64, I was in Ireland, and, and I think that I read, must have been one of the first pieces on them in the, in the pop press. I think it was in The People, who used to have their, their pop thing, and people used to get the Sunday papers quite regularly then. And, um, and there was a thing on the Kinks, you really got me here, just come into the charts, and was swiftly heading for number one. And uh, I would have seen, obviously, Dave on top of the pops, and he did have the longest hair I'd ever seen, and... Worse, he looked like a girl. He looked like a girl. Well, nobody yeah. looked like a girl. I mean, he, he had. He, up he until was almost pre- aggressively pretty. Up until yeah. the pretty things came along, nobody had hair as long as that. Yeah. I mean, it made the Beatles or even the Stones look quite short yeah. head by comparison. Um, extraordinary. So your father used to take against Dave oh, yeah. Davis. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> my father, your father used to stir. Father, the group that he hated the most was the Kinks because of Dave Davis. And he'd wait till the Kinks came on the television. He'd walk in and do that thing. Is it a boy or is it a girl? You know, which is, must have been happening in a million households at the time. You know, but Dave Davis, it was actually very threatening. You know, wasn't he? And the, the, a bit later yeah. than that, they had their uh, frock coats and their riding boots, and uh, they were just well, quite outrageous. Well, they did. I mean, the, the, you know, when uh, Dave's. Um, Elder sister Gwen um, was born in '38, but I mean they, they mistook her for him. They chased her yeah. down the road because they That's thought, right. he, and she does look very like him in certain pictures. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. got the centre parting, which again was dangerously a feat at the time. hadn't been seen since Oscar Wilde days. I would have. That's right. exactly. So, what's the story behind the uniforms that they adopted in those early days? The hunting jackets and and so forth. Well, I went into that a lot in the book. Um, I think actually it does come from the Pickwicks, who you probably don't remember, but uh, they they were one of Larry Page's groups, yeah. and Larry Page used to like to dress up his groups to give give them that extra gimmick. Um, and the hunting jackets came partly also about because of the two managers, Robert Waste and Grenville Collins, were society high flyers, and it just seemed to fit uh, as a uniform. I mean, Larry goes too far. He says, oh, you know, I think it was based on my days as Larry Page, the teenage rage, when I wore red and white. I thought, no, Larry, I don't think so. No. This was to do with, with, with 1964. But it, it definitely the Pickwicks, if you looked at them, they were dressed up in Edwardian gear, and it's very similar to, to what the Kinks were doing there. It's fascinating, actually, the, the tangent about the relationship with the, with the Beatles, because there's a bit where he, he, he won't acknowledge how influential the Beatles are. In fact, when the Beatles come on the radio, when they're successful, he turns the radio off, doesn't he? Yeah, that's but extraordinary. But at, at one point, the managers, probably Larry, say to oh, him, Larry. unless yeah. you... Unless you put the words uh, you or me in the, your song titles, you will not have a hit. Because the Beatles had um, She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, from me, whatever, to you. from me to You. And so he then wrote, You Really Got Me. 
and had a huge hit. So <laughs> well, he'd, written, he'd already written You Still Want Me, which wasn't a big hit. Yeah. Uh, and that came from the same idea. It's, it's an old Tim Penali trick to, to personalise a song. It was nothing yeah. new. Um, Larry knew that from, you know, from being a pop star himself in the 50s. Yeah. And, um, and he did it again and again. You know, I mean, he had the trogs, you know, yeah. with, with a girl like you, um, you know, anyway, you want me, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and... It's recycled, but it's interesting, yes, that, that Ray, of course, Ray wasn't a songwriter. That's the other thing we forget, um, because he is such a phenomenal songwriter. We think that surely, like Lennon McCartney, he was probably writing songs back in, you know, from the time he was 10 or something. But um, not so, you know. I mean, he experimented with things. I mean, You Really Got Me did come from work that he'd done before, maybe a riff somewhere. Uh, he's explained that elsewhere, but... I think in, it wasn't as if he was coming along with a, a catalogue of songs um, to, to Eddie Kasner, who's the publisher, and saying, look, I'm the new songwriting genius, I'm, I'm the new Jimmy Webb or whoever yeah. w- would later be. Um, not at all. Uh, and he wasn't a front man either. A lot of contradic- another contradiction about Ray is, is, you know, Dave's more the front man. Um, Ray's always been quite a shy person, um, wonderful performer, but it's, it's, it's something I think was learned. And... Um, at first, they weren't sure. They thought they'd get a, a lead singer, uh, perhaps. And, you know, partly financial, partly because he emerged with, with his own songs. And, of course, the early songs were quite primitive R&B copies. And that's why the, I think the first two weren't, you know, hits. Well, one was Long Talk Sally, but You Still Want Me was a, basically a Beatles pastiche. He wasn't exactly coming up with, with, with his own original stuff straight away. And the speed with which he evolved as a singer, and all this comes from his observational skills. I mean, his observational skills are so acute. It's incredible, yeah. um, the, the themes that he There's comes up really with. There's a really good point you make in the book, that he seems to be both, um, both involved and simultaneously detached from things he writes about. Which is a lovely, lovely idea. Because well, he, you feel he, he's right in the middle of these scenes he's writing about, and yet what, he's still looking at them. Yeah, makes sense well, he's looking it. at his brother a lot of the time, and um, you know his role in the pop world fascinates him. Oh, there's um, a bit where Dave Davis's mum comes into the, the the house, the whole bedroom, and finds Dave in bed with five girls. Am I right? Five? Yeah, well, five. I'm not making that up, am I? We've all done it, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, and be, it's just, it's just so Dave is really living this kind of outrageous kind of mid sixties sexual revolution thing. Well, it he? got worse. And Ray is sitting there going, "Oh, he got yeah, worse." Notebook. He, he moved into a house with Mick Avery, um, yeah. which has lasting repercussions, which presumably go on to this day because they became the fiercest of enemies within the group. Can, can we just say at this point, unless we, in case we forget, that it, Ray at one point describes Mick Avery as having the personality of a cucumber sandwich. He does not. <laughs> He does not. That's a misquote from your good self. It, it was, a, sorry, was that a misquote? Not, it, it not was, the it, first. It, it was actually it was Sam Curtis, the roadman. Oh, sorry, sorry, I thought it was Ray. Sorry. No, no, no. Um, Apologies. Uh, no. Ray actually likes Sam Curtis. I can't, I can't oh, okay. imagine why. Because oh, okay. He's the biggest critic of Ray Davis that I've ever met in my life. Um, he's phenomenally outraged. But, 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 but Mick and Ray didn't get on, did they? Or... Yes. Oh, they oh no, they, oh. They're, they're the best, best of friends. At first, no, I think it was an, an evolving thing. Um, you know, it's funny because it starts off with, with Dave and Mick sharing a house together, and they're the close friends in the group, uh, as you said, with, 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 with the girls and all the rest of it, and the late-night party, and it's, it's a 
looked, looked, looked like it's a good arrangement. And Ray, of course, being the quiet person. And yet, as the story evolves, um, Ray and Mick are the closest of friends. And they still are. And you can still see that affection, even when they were up at the Pete Quaif Foundation, um, you know, the, the plaque when it, the school. Um, Ray and Mick, they're like a double act. I mean, it's really funny. And well, even, I, I even unreservedly apologise. <laughs> But the uh, swinging 60s, anyway. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so many of Ray's songs are identified with, rightly or wrongly, with swinging London, you know, yeah. de- dedicated follower of fashion and Carnaby Street and so forth. But he's very, he's very ambivalent about all this stuff, wasn't he? he I was wasn't... completely ambivalent because he really didn't feel he was a part of the swinging 60s. Again, it's all Dave. Dave was living that life. Uh, and again, described it as a total lie, did he? Did I get yes, that right? he did. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was his business yeah, about it. Yeah. Uh, don't forget, Ray, Ray married very young, and, and you know he had, he had two children. So he, for most of the swing 60s, he was at home trying to be a father or out on the road trying to be a kink. Um, but even the songs themselves are incredibly ambivalent. Um, most of us, you know, you, you hear them and you think they're all, you know, sing along and wonderful and, and positive. But beneath the positivity, there's always a absolutely there's always a question. You know, where have all the good times gone? Well, even this the is amazing. But which I, I didn't know that he's, this is Barry Fantoni down the bottom oh, here, yes. the great uh, kind of satirist and um, you know part of the Private Eye gang. And that's, uh, well, that's Lance Percival, actually, isn't it, on the right there? Yeah, and that's David yes, Frost on, on that Recently that late, Lance And Percival. Fantoni introduced him to this whole world of these, these satirists and cartoonists and comedians, which obviously had a huge, profound effect on him. Well, there are a couple of people that, that did that. I mean, he later became involved with, with Ned Sheeran. And I find it interesting that if you get outside of the kinks, um, it's people like Fantoni and Ned Sheeran are just... Elevate rates. They, they are so complimentary of him. Um, it's really funny reading. I mean, you talk to Fantoni, and he is so disparaging. Um, he says, Ray, you know, genius, this and that. He said, you know, Pete Towns is my best friend, but, I'm, you know, Pete can't write, Pete, Pete can't write pop songs. Um, I don't think he's any good. And those Rolling Stones, you know, I mean, Jagger, what, that, Jagger you know, it's just a, somebody from Dagenham who thought he could be a blues singer. And, and he, he just, he goes through these icons and reduces them to rubble. Leaving and Ray leaving on Ray a pedestal. And, yeah. and Ned Sheeran does the same thing. Um, and admittedly, it's, it's not as powerful as Ned Sheeran because he'd never heard, he said, oh, I, I, I don't know anything about pop music. I don't think I'd heard of any kink songs until my assistant told me about them. And... Um, and he discovers but, Ray and, and works with him on all, all the, these projects, and, and they have a, a great relationship too. But, but he, he just thinks he doesn't. He said, I never understood the Rolling Stones. I just I can't understand what the attraction could possibly be. But that run of songs that Ray had, I mean, my goodness, from about 1963 to through to what 67, 68. We once counted them up, you know. It was a 17 absolutely peerless hits. Even the B sides. Oh, the B sides. I go are to great. sleep. Um, she's got everything, you know. Uh, that's that's alongside Dead End Street and Sunny Afternoon. But this particular period is. And the- he was writing, and let's not forget, and I think it must make him unique. He was writing all of them on his own yep. and singing them on his own, wasn't he? Wasn't well, like Lennon and McCartney. That's true, yeah. Well, also, the other thing to add is that, you know, the Kings could have had, I think, three or four double A sides. Yeah. yeah Which they never did. Absolutely. Um, you know, the Beatles did it, even the Yardbirds had. Um, Still, I'm sad, uh, you know, uh, and evil hearted you, remember, uh, as a double A side. But the Kinks never did. And you think of things like you mentioned some, but, you know, Big Black Smoke, I'm not like everybody else in yeah. Sunny Afternoon. But 
getting back to what you said before, I mean, something like Sunny Afternoon and Dedicated Follower of Fashion, that wonderful sing-along. I mean, Dedicated Follower of Fashion was inspired by a punch-up where Ray actually had a fight with real blood in, in his house because a fashion designer had criticised his flared trousers or said they weren't <laughs> flared enough. You know. were flared so there was enough. a slight flare, but... And, and, and that produced... That produced the it just so snapped. The, the song came straw. out of violence and Ray rushed off to his typewriter, still angry, and, and wrote this very satirical song. And um, you, Sunny Afternoon is similar. It's, it's about the squeeze, it's about the, you know, save me, save me, save me from the that's squeeze. That's right, the economic squeeze, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's so many good sections oh, in Johnny's book where you go sideways into the pop cultural landscape and, and talk about how it affected Ray and how Ray is holding up a mirror to it. It's just really, really fascinating. That's his first. That's his first wife and first, first child. First, my first child. So when is this? Sixty-six. No, sixty-five. Right. Okay. So, God, how old was he? Then? How did the domestic years? side of his life fit in with his professional life? Was it as much of a problem as it is with so many musicians? Well, it was. Um, you know, it just all seemed to happen so quickly. They. That's Raza on the right. He, she was a fan he met at a gig in 64, and she was uh, Lithuanian. She was actually born in 1948 in Germany and um, came over with her parents. And as she said, you know, behind my front door, it was Lithuania. Uh, the food, everything, uh, the whole culture. And um, Catholic as well. And so... Ray met her at a, at, a, at a gig. She came backstage and saw all these pop musicians in half undressed and thought, this is wonderful. And they started going out with each other. Very distant relationship at first. And her sister Dahlia moved to London and she came down and they had an assignation there. And to cut a long story short, she became pregnant. And by the end of the year, they were, they were getting married. And uh, how, how that's what you do. So he's probably about, what, 1920? Well, he's not... Yeah, Henry Free's 21st birthday. 21st birthday, yeah. A month away from it, I would think. Astonishing. Yeah. And, and he's about to go on the American tour, the, the ill-fated American tour, which destroys the kinks and has lasting repercussions again for the next four years. They get banned. Destroyed the kinks, so they were, they were banned, weren't they? they well, they were, as I re- say, they were blacklisted. I, 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 the, the other myth about that, I don't think there ever was a ban as such, and there's nothing on paper. Yeah. It's just this... The other point I make is, is people have forgotten this. It's, it's extraordinary when you think back. People think they were blacklisted for four years. They weren't allowed back. They must have done something so terrible. And it was true. It was, it, you know, they, uh, Ray hit a union official, unfortunately, in, in the States. Not a wise thing to do in America at that time. Clarkson-esque uh, manoeuvre. But, nevertheless, yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> no words. Didn't get in bad. Actually, we should talk about that. We should talk about yeah. that. It's so interesting that, that the, the kinks had this reputation for just, I mean, there was an amazing scene in the book where they, they caused this a riot at the Scandinavian. Was it in Denmark or Sweden? Yeah. There's, there's a riot. And the promoter takes them aside and says, Why can't he be nice and well behaved like the Rolling Stones? And you just yeah. can't, you can't believe this. It's the kinks, you know. And so, what, 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 what was it about? Why were they? You didn't expect them to be quite so aggressive, really, and, well, look, and to, to stir up such a fervor. Well, they were on the road, you know, constantly, but that's no excuse, as everybody else was at the time as well. But there were simmering tensions within the band. Don't forget, Ray's doing, as you rightly said, all the songwriting. He's got his family. Uh, he's dealing with all that. And as with all groups, the internecine strife that is going on is, is quite incredible. Um, Dave and Mick were sharing the flat, but they're no, longer, they're no longer getting on. 
And this is a problem. Uh, Pete Quaid's kind of in the middle, but wary because he can't side with one without alienating the other. You've got the fraternal rivalry, which you haven't even discussed, which starts when Ray and Dave, when Dave's about five, I think they have their first fight then. Uh, and, um, and even then, the psychological conundrums, according to Dave, that he, well, I'll tell it, you know, the, the story of the boxing match when, yeah, yeah. when he's five years old. I mean, they find some boxing gloves that their uncle has and um, pick them up and decide to have a fight in the bedroom. And, and Dave gets a lucky punch, knocks Ray on the floor, and he's out, as far as Dave's concerned. And Dave, as a younger kid, he's knocked out his brother, and he's very concerned. He might, doesn't know what he's done, and he's hovering over him and um, saying, are you all right? And then Dave, Ray just punches him from <laughs> <laughs> and he said, that is symbolic of our entire relationship. <laughs> That's great. But, uh, in a nutshell. But but getting back to, sorry, for just to, 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 before we got on the America tour or the whole thing, just to add that um, the, one of the big points in the book was, was, was that it's amazing to think back. I mentioned about hitting the union official, and you know maybe that wasn't such a bad thing to do because the, the state of, of, of the music business then... Um, with regard to unions, it's extraordinary. Nobody can get over to the States. Um, it is very, very difficult. The animals get over there and they can't play Harlem. And they, you know, look where their music came from. But more importantly, the great one is Wayne Fontana. He's number one in Billboard with the Game of Love. They won't let him in on the grounds that he's not well known enough. And you think, well, I'm number one. Number one. Like, what do you want? And that's how extraordinary it was. And, and uh, the Kinks got over there, but it wasn't easy. And Ray wanted his wife to come. And as Larry Page says, well, she's from the Eastern Bloc. <laughs> they don't like them anyway, and I like getting her in America. So it was fun. This is, you know, just how the kinks used to unwind. You know, <laughs> yeah. After gigs, you know, firing, uh, firing bows and arrows at each other. You know, the, the, there is a strong tradition of fisticuffs, isn't there, in, in the kinks? And people throwing things at each other. Well, I mean, obviously, you, you'd have to sum it up with the... I've got a whole chapter on the Cardiff incident in, in, in the book, and that's where... <laughs> the, the Cardiff, Cardiff incident. <laughs> all we, it's all we need to say, really. Yeah. yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, just fill in a few gaps, but it, it, it involves a symbol, doesn't it, being thrown across the stage? It, it, or? Well, it's not thrown, but it, it, it goes back to Dave and Mick having this flat together and, and even a Ray still doesn't know why this conflict has even happened because it's one minute they're they've got this place together and the next minute they're, there's enmity going on now I don't know I don't think anything actually ever happened at the at the house I spoke to David several times about it again going back to it and all he would say was um I don't think it was to do... I think it was Mick wasn't taking my side against Ray. He would go silent and say, oh, I don't want to choose between the two of you. Um, which, looking back, is a very reasonable thing to have done. But in Dave's world, it, it wasn't. And he became very frustrated. And he thinks the conflict may have emerged from something as simple as what song they might do in the set. And Dave suggested something, and Ray suggested something else. And Mick wouldn't come in and say, go with Dave's song. So that's his memory of it but it, it friction started emerging and um, I think 
you know, the number of witnesses that saw that card of incident is quite a number. Uh, Which, again, to be specific, uh, officer, it, did it involve uh, somebody get their head... Well, yeah. out, not quite. But. Now, more importantly, it started the night before in Taunton. And uh, right, the, t- the Taunton incident. The Taunton, yeah, the <laughs> Taunton my, minor by comparison. Dave had... Uh, Dave had taken a lot, a lot of... Probably speed. Dave and speed didn't go well. He's a far enough character as it is. He doesn't need to be hyped up anymore, and he's young. <laughs> um, but... He he went a bit crazy the night before, and 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 they they were a bit worried. But he ended up throwing a case at Mick's back, and there'd been a lot of taunting going on before that, taunting and taunting. And um, finally, Mick just snapped, which is very unlike him. He's a very Pacific character, Mick Avery, um, big build and all the rest of it. But he's you know he's, he's a very peaceful guy, um, and he just lunged at him. And there was a terrible you know there was, was blood. I mean he had. You know, you don't want to get under Mick Avery's arms. They are strong. He's, this guy, you know, he was a labourer before he was a king. And he was punching Dave. <laughs> a headlock. And Dave had taken so much, so much um, artificial stimulants that he just kept coming back for more. And he was invulnerable like Superman. He didn't feel pain anymore. And by the following night, he had two black eyes. He came on stage in dark glasses. And they both came on from different sides of the stage. And they were kept apart in the bus. And... They got as far as one number. Who do you really got me? And then uh, it all kicked off. It well, literally kicked off because Dave kicked his drum kit over. He turned him round and he said, "You better off playing the drums with your cock rather than." Uh, oh, that's not nice, And he didn't like that. <laughs> but as he said, you know, mixed mixed drums then were like hallowed ground. And uh, he said, "Now he'd probably kick him over himself. He wouldn't care." But um, picture the scene. The, the first numbers just been performed, about to do Beautiful Delilah, and poor old Mix on the floor with his dishevelled drum kit, humiliated in front of everybody, all laughing because they think this is absolutely hilarious. Probably a stage stunt. They didn't realise it was real. And then, you know, he, he grabbed the, the hi-hat symbol, which is a small symbol, and he just came across and hit Dave. It just only grazed, grazed him, but it was, it was blood. It's got a smart a bit, isn't it? There was blood, yeah. yeah. No, and he collapsed on the floor and, you know, the... Ray is reputed to have said, he's killed my brother, he's killed my brother. Whether he actually... Those were his exact words. I, God, so, but, but everybody else um, who saw it, I mean, um, Chris Dreyer was on the side. He said it was like a, rich, it was like a ritual beheading, as far as I can see. He said, I was shaking myself from witnessing it. Um, and that's the famous Cardiff incident. It ends with Mick running off stage, out of the theatre, down Cardiff. Chased by it's just brilliant. Chased by some of the two thousand five hundred fans that attended, all girls, of course, chasing him down the road because these are the kings. And That's he's running to a Keystone Cops movie, isn't and it? he's running <laughs> yeah. for his life. And he ends up in a cafe, um, getting a coffee and shaking. The road manager has to track him down. He said, "I found him by following this trail of gold." <laughs> and he said, "There's a waitress was consoling him, saying it's going to be all right." And he, he thought he might have killed him, and they just got him out of car. He, he just put him on a train and said, "Get out of here." And the police got involved and. And that's the start. Of, that's the Cardiff incident, and then America follows weeks later. So that's why they didn't have a smooth ascent. Say, you didn't get a lot of that in Haircut One Hundred. <laughs> you didn't get a lot of that in the Beatles. You know, no, they, they were kind of you did uniquely of unlucky, either. weren't they? You know what I mean? And and also just yeah, make your own luck, though. Oh, wait, okay, no, fine. But one of the points you make is that they were kind of in the in the second, despite they had their yeah. tons of hits. There was the Beatles and the Stones up there, yep. and then the 
That oh, was number the, three. There were yeah. three groups try, vying to be the third. Trying to get promoted. Yeah. The Yardbirds, yeah. Manfred Mann and the Kings. Yeah, OK. And did they make it? Yes, they did, really, didn't they? Did they, did they, I mean, they, they saw off the opposition? Yes. What, the Kings? Yeah. I'll, well, think about it, you know, you really, yeah, got, really got me number one all, all, yeah, all day and all night number two. And the, the key is tired of waiting for you. When they get to number one, and it's completely stylistically different from what they've done before, suddenly you've got Ray the Emergence as a songwriter, and he's, that, they were very unlucky not to have three number ones, which yeah. people would remember that to this day otherwise. But, um, yeah, that, that, was, that was the key one. Um, chart positions, of course, were all important then. Yeah, uh, but the Hollies hadn't had uh, two number ones, but then none of those other acts had either. Ah, oh, we're jumping to the super. So, well, yes, the, you know, this, it's quite interesting that this kind of competition between these bands still went on, didn't it? You know, so you, you get into the era of the, you know, the the long form concept albums. Call them what you will, yeah. and they're sort of in the shadow of the Who, aren't they? Over over doing this kind of thing. It's a shame because they were ahead of the game. There are so many contradictions in Ray's character, so many delays. It's Pyre Records. That probably doesn't help either. It certainly doesn't help. <laughs> there are singles group who are, who are suddenly making albums. It goes back far earlier than this. Um, I would say Face to Face is probably the, a concept album as well in, 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 in its format. I mean, it was supposed to have sound effects going all the way through. They retained some of them. But it really was a... a um, a, a thematic album, as, as, or, or at least it has effects and, and strange things going on. Um, obviously, the Village Green Preservation Society precedes. Oh, that is <laughs> precedes Arthur, which are the two famous um, concept albums. Um, but they're very unlucky because the Who, of course, well. They, they write a bombastic album about a deaf, dumb and blind boy and they've got Pinball Wizard as a hit. Ray's, Ray's got no single on Village Green Preservation Society. He's writing about Village Greens. It's not sexy. You He's know, not cool, it? is he? I no, mean, that was it the was also considered. The, the and the Who that. just beat... I think they just released just before that, weren't they? Did they come out just before Arthur? Or am I getting the times wrong? I think, I think the Who's record came out... Kind of, kind of put Arthur very much in the shade. Is that right? Yes, it did. But, in terms you know, of rock musicals. But yeah. you forget Village Green Preservation Society had already been out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They'd already done it. Yeah. And um, I think yeah, th- there is a bit of bad luck because Arthur was supposed to be a Granada TV... It was supposed to tie in with the Granada TV programme. Yeah. Now, if you had a major TV programme with the album coming out the same week, then you're onto a winner. But, you know, the sales were pretty poor, actually, on, 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 on both of them, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking. This is the, the oh, crowning glory story. hit. Yeah. Where you talk about the trouble they had to go to to overdub or replace one word on the, on the it's team. It's the BBC, dear boy. So. Go on, tell us the story. Well, the... the uh, they made the mistake of, of including the word Coca-Cola, which is brand advertising. You can't do that. You never get played on the BBC. Certainly won't get to appear on top of the pops. Um, you, you actually get banned. I mean, wonderful irony. You write a song about a transvestite or whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> it's the BBC. <laughs> um, which was extraordinarily risque for that period. And nobody cared. I mean, the, the BBC were fine with that. Uh, their problem was with Coca-Cola. So he had to fly back from the States and replace that one word and make it Jerry Cola. And uh, 
Uh, has to be said, got a lot of good publicity out of it, though. The NME made it into a front page, you know, ra- raised 6,000... It's so analogue, isn't it? The idea that they had to fly was 6,000 miles yeah. to overdone one word, you know. Oh, this, I mean, this is... I thought this was well, just there's a kinks heartbreaking. Man, yeah. There's the one of the kinks, uh, great T-shirts. This is just a heartbreaking story. You know, when he, um, Chrissy Hyde absolutely adored him, was a great fan of the kinks, and she'd just covered, I think it was Stop Your Sobbing, she'd had a yep. hit with, and they met up and then they had this love affair and had a child, and, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, what, what you know, what, what, I'm a bit surprised you didn't write more about it, actually. It was a, there's a fair amount in the book, but what, what's your reading of that situation? I mean, how... how, how you uh, said you were very pleased I didn't write more about it. Um, well, she never became his wife, uh, so, you know, nearly did. They went to the reg, registrar's office and... Um, <laughs> they're apparently having an argument and uh, they missed the appointment in the end and they never went back but uh, it's a very volatile the super fan and the super fan and the sorry he ordered pate foie gras oh, there you go yeah, yeah, yeah. did he yeah, yeah, yeah. oh sorry, sorry. Oh. I've only just got that guy that's another sorry that's a little a little tangent there but I mean uh, the, the, the foundation for a relationship the super fan and the and the uh, object of her affection is never going to be you know terribly uh, likely to work, is it? I don't know. You wouldn't have thought so. No, well, it was a very volatile relationship. Um, you know, the, the, and, and I mean that, literally very, very volatile. Um, and, and, you know, raised no comments on it since have all been, it was something that should have lasted a few weeks and, and that was it. It was good while it lasted then, but not after. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it just... Founded and then, as you know, she she married Jim Kerr of Simple Minds in the States, and I think it was a pretty devastating time for him. So this uh, is moving into the nineties, I suppose, and possibly beyond, where he's kind of after quite a fallow period, he's suddenly rediscovered as the you know he's the, the godfather of Britpop. But it wasn't <laughs> yeah, the, well, it wasn't the first time you, you you know you could have connected this with with seventy seven. Ray's constantly been rediscovered and. Not that he's ever really gone away. When I want to say rediscover, that's stupid. But you know what I mean? He, he goes out of fashion. He went out of fashion very much in the 70s, as we know, yeah. um, because he was determinedly pursuing these um, concept albums, you know, the preservations and the soap operas, etc. And even his own band weren't too pleased about that. Dave, of course, particularly. They, want, they all wanted to go back to rock and roll. But this all goes back to the childhood and the, mus- the, the interest in musical. And I think from this perspective, you look back and think, my God, wasn't it quite a brave thing to do? Um, and for RCA Records to, to go along with him with it for so long as well, it's extraordinary looking back. I mean, when he goes to Arista, they just become an arena rock group again and conquer the States. But you think, well, you know, they could have done that three or four years before if Ray hadn't stubbornly persisted with this. But it was obviously something that he was passionate about. And... Um, and, you know, we now look back and think, well, if you, if, you know, if you took the best of those songs, it's actually pretty good. There's just too many records that were coming out. Uh, but in 77, the, the, the kinks were sort of championed in, in, in the punk new wave years by some. But I think that's been overstated too. They were, they were, they were very ambivalent towards the kinks. I think had they been as big as Led Zeppelin, they'd been put in the dock as well. But because yeah. uh, I, I also said if, if, if the kinks had been like the small faces and had broken up in the 60s with that perfect catalogue, the, the, they would have been even more That's revered. Interesting point, yeah. Um, but I always but, thought but, it was a, you could trace a line from the kinks to... Um, who would it be after that? Probably... Uh, 
the, the jam and, and squeeze and then, and then, you know, kind of pulp and blur and ultimately, I suppose, Arctic monkeys. You know, the people who just had this wonderfully forensic way of looking at... Um, Suburban life and the tiny details of people's existence. Oh, They're very uniquely British, actually. Indeed, and the, and the quintessential Englishness of it as well. I mean, the, the, you know, the fact that the jam never made it really in the States, yeah. and, 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 and you know, the, the kinks have been stopped in the States from, from touring the States during their key period. And it's the same, you know, with, with, with Blur. Think of Suede. I mean, Suede never did anything in the States. Absolutely. Uh, you know, support with the Cranberries. And, and, but um, often the music does really well in America is the, the big, broad brushstrokes. You know, Probably the, the, most, the most recent example of this appalling bad luck uh, is Chronicle in this uh, book that he wrote not long ago, yeah. which is where he got, he got shot in New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't happen to everybody, is it? No, only happened to Ray. Um, so what was he doing in New Orleans? He was living there, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, he was rediscovering himself. He had, he had a relationship there, which uh, I can't go into it, really. I mean, I could do, but um, the, the, the poor woman wrote to me about it, and I, 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 she didn't even want her name mentioned. But anyway, we... we We'll brush over that, perhaps. Is, is, it, is it unkind to, to, to think that this incident where he gets shot does point up one of the themes yeah. of your book, which is an extraordinary meanness? Uh, you know, that he, he, he you know, uh, the, there's so many examples. What's that expression when he goes to the bar? He says, what half are you drinking? Yeah, never gonna, yeah, yeah, what the half can I get you? <laughs> Just very funny. And well, and, and anyway, it, am I right in thinking that when, it, when, when, when yeah. he's basically somebody nicks his wallet, and in America, if somebody nicks your wallet, it's possibly best well, to say, he, you know what, have my wallet, he, but don't go running after them. And, no, you know. he, had, he made a big mistake of, of putting his money in with, with her money in her handbag, and they took her bag, and Ray ran after them instinctively, you know. So it's, it's part heroism, part you're not taking my money. But then um, when but then shot in the leg... Yeah, yeah, well, the, of course, when the medics were brought to him, um, they cut his trousers to look at the wound, the wound, to inspect the wound, and... He said, but they're new trousers. So, <laughs> even at that moment, he was concerned. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, you mentioned as a sub-theme. Yet race thriftiness, which again goes right back to those austerity years. Um, and even at his grant, I don't think he spent any money when he, when he got his grant at Fawnsy. <laughs> he hung on to that. But, yeah, there are loads of examples like that. But they're funny because... You know, we're not talking Alan Klein here. We're not talking Mick Jagger with, with, with the Prince and, and all these millions and, and all these big deals going on and how he's going to do, you know, major... This is all... Larry, um, I need some chewing gum. I don't see... Could you lend me a penny? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's all... There's a scene in about 1967. No, but he, he, he makes... But Ray has now made sort of fun of it himself. I mean, he told that great story of... of um, he went for a meal up in North London and uh, he said, you know, by chance, the, the guy thought I was Time Out's uh, restaurant critic. So I didn't have to pay for the meal. There's silly little things like that. There's a little bit where he's going along with, with, with his girlfriend in, in, in 1966 or whatever. She says, can I have the money for that coat? And well, that's what, his wife. That's his wife. And she doesn't mean, you know, are you going to buy me a coat? She wants the money to get to go to the dry cleaners to get the coat back. She already owns a coat. She's just had the dry cleaners. Do you remember? Yeah, he no. won't give the money. Yes, it's, 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 it's can, I, can I have that coat, Ray, please? It's really, it's really cold. No, you can't have it. It's too expensive. Please, Ray. It's really cold. I said, no, 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 no. It's far too expensive. And then finally, after, 
Larry Page and Curtis were there and saying, God, it was driving us crazy because it just went on, seemed to go on and on and on and pleading, please. And then finally Ray says, all right, driver, go to Sketchley's. <laughs> go to Sketchley's, that's right, fantastic. But this is a man who's had several number one records. Well, it, now I think, uh, it, bringing us to a, a conclusion, um, I think he can afford, you know, to go to Sketchley's as many times as he likes now. <laughs> I, I did a thing with with him and Stratford on even a year or so ago, and he was just on the points of this West End musical, Sunny Afternoon, based on mm. his songs. And uh, you know, and he made the usual, usual optimistic noises that people always make, and I kind of, kind of thought, well, that won't last long. Well, of course it has, isn't it? It's been a huge success. Oh, it's been phenomenal. And um, the only sad thing for me is that I thought... Come Dancing, which is much more cerebral, and it, 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 I thought that was his greatest work um, in terms of, of theatre, and it, it should have gone national, and for a series of circumstances, that didn't happen. And now he's written what is basically a, a Kinks musical, whereas Come Dancing is a real nerve-ending stuff about his family, his family and the death of his sister and all the rest of that. And that's that, so there's the two sides of Ray in that sense, too. Yeah. The story of the group and the, the hits that we all know, and this deeper, darker story, which is alluded to in, in Come Dancing, um, and that's important. J- just for a second, um, you'll like this, Mark. You know the reviews of the book? I pick up the Times. <laughs> I think it's w- w- Will Hodkinson or something who's reviewing the book, and he says, yeah, this is amazing. He said, um, I, I, I interviewed, I had to do this interview with Ray. He did this Sky um, documentary on Ray as well, and he said, went out for a meal and up in North London, and uh, he said, I couldn't understand it. He said, Ray said he's having problems selling his house, and could he possibly pay for the meal? And so he did, and he said, it was only when I got to the station, and I saw him walking back to his mansion in North London, as he described it, that I suddenly realised that I'd been gone. <laughs> and that's a review, and I thought, oh, well, add that to the letter. It's, it's just, again, it's all, it's, it's low comedy, and don't forget, Ray did an album called Low Budget. Um, yeah. Where, you know, there's lines in that that are quite funny. You know, don't call me mean if I don't buy a round or... That's right. So it is, it, as in the title of the, of the book, it's a complicated it, it life. It is incredibly complicated. Complicated life and, uh, and you know, new chapters are opening up all the time. Uh, would you thank Johnny Rogan? <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.